Amen. Thank you, Pastor Justin. Well, good morning, Mission Church. Uh, my name is Eric Baker, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church, and I have the primary responsibility of doing most of the teaching and preaching here on Sunday mornings. And so on behalf of myself and our church family, thank you guys for gathering with us. If you'd be so kind, uh, grab that Bible that is that in front of you. Uh, if you brought one, that's fine. That's great. If you have one on your device, um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible located out in front of you. And we would encourage you to turn to the second book inside of that Bible. It starts out with Genesis, and then the next book is the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, here at Mission, uh, we have been working through the book of Exodus, and you guys have come to a place where we are talking through the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, or the Two Tablets. There are several different names that they've been given um, throughout the biblical history and also through our history. And so we have come today to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. And so if you have borrowed one of those Bibles that is out in front of you and you do not own a Bible, then please feel free to take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. So let us read together the words of the Lord. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 is where we currently are, and let us read uh, that passage from God's Word. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, this week, as I was uh, preparing, uh, Laura and I were going out on for a date, and so she should not be surprised, as I said, thank you for giving me the introduction to the sermon this week. And as she asked me, um, you know, one of the many pet names that she has for me, and this was a good one, and so she says something to me and says something about, what's the, what's the sermon going to be about this week? And, and I gave her the passage of Scripture, of which she then quoted to me as a teenager from the 90s, a song from No Doubt called Don't Speak that continued to play over and over, and we just forgot everything that we were talking about as we jammed out as loudly as possible, and I began to tell her stories about how I used to DJ parties, and that was one of the things on the turntable that I used to play for all the youngins to get hyped to. <laughs> it was a good time, good time. Um, and so, uh, as we're thinking about this passage of Scripture today, and as they even put this up on the screen, maybe you're thinking, what does don't speak have to do with you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? What it actually has a lot uh, to do with that passage, and so hopefully, prayerfully today, uh, the Lord will use me, a broken, feeble man, in order to speak about his, on his behalf, for his glory and for our good, that he would transform your hearts. That's ultimately what we want, is that we are all here broken people today, and yet... Christ is sufficient and powerful enough to transform our lives. Um, as a college professor up at WKU, one of the classes that I teach is on critical thinking uh, for college freshmen as we're trying to get them to understand that the, their freshman year is not the 13th grade, uh, that the expectation upon them from leaving high school in those 12 kind of primary years um, and going to a college or university, the expectation is much different. Uh, the expectation is much greater. And so in this critical thinking course that I teach is that uh, one of the questions that I ask on one of the first days of class is I put up on the board like this or write it on the board, and I ask that question, what is truth? What is truth? 
And much like what's happening inside this room right now, there can typically be a lot of silence. One, they're freshmen, they're scared to say anything. But two, is that when you begin to ask people growing up in a culture inside of 2021 what is truth, then you get many different definitions. You get definitely, definitely many different concepts of this idea of what is truth. Uh, we are now past the postmodern era, um, into an era that we don't know what it is, but the postmoderns made this very popular with the understanding and belief and practice that there is no such thing as absolute truth, which sounds to me like they've just made an absolute truth statement, but that's for philosophers and people of logic to figure out, but I went to public school. And um, when we see this understanding of um, just the basis of what is truth, and the thing is, is that if there is such a thing as truth, then it's true for me, and it's also true for you as well. And when we come to this passage of Scripture, anytime that we come from Genesis to Revelation, is that it is presenting itself, and you need to get this, as factual truth, as absolute truth for all humanity, past, present, and future. That it is true for all people. That it is about God, and He's declaring in this Word that it is about Him, it's about his son, it's about his, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that it is presenting itself as factual information and truth. Now, please understand, if you're a person who is a seeker, a non-believer, a person whose your religion is science, you need to get this. The Bible is not a science book, all right? It's also not a, um, a history book in the sense of being that it is that this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened. Um, it is history, it is true history, but it's not lined up like your history uh, lessons inside of uh, your history books, per se, all right? You need to understand that context matters, context, 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 and when you come to the Bible, again, maybe we'll figure that out here today, is that it is, is proclaiming about itself who God is and that he is creator God. It's also proclaiming that his son Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to this holy God and that through the power of the Holy Spirit that your life of sin and brokenness can be changed through the gospel, through the reality of a person, not a philosophy, and his name is Jesus. This is truth. That's where the Bible is coming from. That's where the biblical worldview is coming from. So when we come to this passage of Scripture, like we've done in all of these commandments, is we begin to ask ourselves a series of questions. These questions range from what is it revealing about God? So revelation. It's also confronting something within us. The word confronts, it calls us to something. You can't just passively um, ignore the Scripture. Even today, it is going to confront something inside of our hearts. We also see the power of the incarnation of Jesus and how he, he really intersects this Old Testament law and what it means from him and for him and for us. And lastly, we'll be looking at application. How do we apply this passage of Scripture if it is True. So let's look first at Revelation. What does this passage say about God? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When we look at this passage and other scriptures like it, um, we, we see very quickly that truth, according to the scripture, is rooted in who God is. He is truth. 
is the incarnation of truth. Everything about him, everything about the God of the Bible, everything that he does is truth. Uh, Apart from God, everything is fiction. God is the embodiment of all things that are true. We see in David, he's a character, you may have known him from David and Goliath, or David who fights this giant. And inside the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31, David says of this God, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. It's declaring something about God. It's revealing something about God, that God is, again, holy, that he is perfect, that his word is true. He is not finicky and and manipulated like you and I are, but he is a shield in his truth for all of those who would find refuge in him. Also in the book of Numbers, it declares in verse 20, chapter 23, verse 19, that God is not man, that he should lie, or son of man, that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or as he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That what the passage there is saying is that, that God will actually do what he says he's going to do. That his yes is actually yes, that his no is, is actually no, and no matter how you and I interpret those things, that God is a God, that he is not like us, and that he does as he pleases. He is truth, and it is reliable. Later on in the New Testament, we see in Hebrews chapter 6, that it even tells us that God is, it is impossible for him to lie. So the first thing to reveal about God is that God is truth. The second thing that we see is that God values words, that God values words. God spoke creation into existence. It was null and void, and he used words to transform that darkness into something of which he could formulate and create. Words mean much to God. God could have chose any other mode of communication. I don't know about in your house, but we like to sing and to sing loudly for all, you know, Christmas cheer uh, to bring happy faces to everyone. But we like to sing in our house, but the, the temptation for Laura and I is, is to, the, to the disapproval of our daughter is that we like to have conversations in song. You ever do that? It's real annoying. Um, but for us, it's really cool unless you're a teenager, okay? God could have chose many modes of communication, and he has chosen words, whether that's through the singing of creation or through the written word that you hold in your hand or can see on your device. That God did not just merely uh, give us, uh, you know, this image of cave drawings, um, but rather he gave us the, the gift of communication that he gave us his very word. It is the word of God. These commandments are the word of God. And if you understand who God is, then you must likewise attribute much great value to those words. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, they were a liar. They were lying. Because they do. They do hurt us. And yet God's word is is perfect, holy, and good. Does it confront us? Absolutely. We're about to see that. 
And yet its purpose isn't this bullying, this God Zeus-like figure that wants to zap us and that we must constantly be appeasing and making right through our works and through um, a lot of sacrificial sorts of things. But we see that God values words, that Throughout the scripture, we see the value inside these words. Now, in this particular grouping of God's words, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, is that God is wanting us to honor and to protect the reputation of others. That God is wanting us to honor and to protect the reputation of other people. We see that in, within this text, the Hebrew context, is that there's definitely this understanding of a courtroom type of scene where someone is being prosecuted, there's a defense, and yet what do we do? We call witnesses. Well, during this time, according to scholars and, and commentaries that I've read, is that during this t- time period and throughout history, um, there has been this common practice that if you accuse someone of something, then they were automatically guilty of that. And so literally, you could accuse somebody walking down the street that, that they've hurt you in some way, that they've stolen something from you in some way. You could accuse them of that. And in the court of law, that one witness was able to profess that. And often this would lead to the actual the punishment of capital punishment. They would take a person's life. Well, we see inside of Scripture, even established in this very command, that God is, is wanting to make sure that what is ever spoken in the court of law, that it is spoken and that it is true. He will go on to say in his writing and in his word that there is a very specific way that this should be taking place. That no longer within God's people, they will be very separate and different than the culture around them. And so that when it came to the court of law or that you were going to to accuse someone of something, especially to the point of imprisonment or to death, then you would have to have the agreement of not just one witness, but of multiple witnesses, two to three witnesses that would have seen the exact same thing before they could be accused. Now, again, why is God doing this? Well, he's doing it because he values human life. Should he? Absolutely not, because he's holy and we're not. We're his enemies apart from Christ. And yet we see God is already establishing something that in his truth and in his word that God is just. I don't think that we necessarily need to add the word social justice to this, but rather that God is about justice. He is about his word, his truth, and the justice and care for people. He wants people to be protected, not only in their bodies, as we saw earlier in the scripture, that we should not murder. What is he doing? He's honoring life that we should honor our parents because they're rulers and authorities over us, Um, that we should honor God with our lips and our actions. And likewise, God is wanting us, us not only to value human life, but as image bearers of God, even if they're non-Christians, is that we should be very honorable toward them and their reputation. God says in this passage, against your neighbor. And we know that in the New Testament, God, that Jesus is going to establish this principle of the commandments that we should love God and that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. The mentioning here, though, isn't just neighbors that you like. It's all of your neighbors that you care about their reputation. 
that we are reminded in this passage that, that we should not, through any form of, of lying or manipulation or deception, witness or, or proclaim things about another person um, in, in a harmful way, but, but rather that we should be loving and caring for them. We see the beauty of this passage that we, as we honor God in his name and who he is, is likewise that you and I are to honor people, all people. It's much easier to do when you really like those people. It's a lot harder to do when you don't like those people, or they just continue to give you ample opportunity and evidence to totally destroy their reputation. What we say with our mouths matters. It matters to God. It matters to him. So how does this then confront us and our culture? Well, you have to start all the way back in the garden again. Typically every week as we've gone through these commandments, we've gone back to Genesis and then spring forth from this, those places because it's important for us to see the connection of the Bible is one whole story. It's all telling the same story. And in that, we see that God creates in the book of Genesis all of, all of creation. He creates humanity, and he says and declares that it is good. But in that, he gives one of his first commandments is that you can be fruitful and multiply. He also says that, man, you can eat of any tree inside of this garden, but there's this one tree that you should not eat of. By the time that we get to Genesis chapter 3, what has already taken place? We see that Satan has entered into the garden, and immediately the Satan begins to question the truth about what God has said. Remember the story? Eve is standing there with some sort of fruit inside of her hand, and in, in that conversation, she is enticed by it. And the serpent, who is crafty and deceptive, comes to her and he says, what? Does God really mean this? Does God really mean, did he, did he actually save Adam and Eve? Did he actually say, Adam and Eve, that, that, that you can't eat of this? I mean, did God actually say, Adam and Eve, did he actually say that, that you, you will not surely die if you eat of this? And yet, as soon as they ate, what happens? They spiritually die. They're spiritually separated from God and will eventually physically die because of those things. Upon Adam and Eve eating the fruit, they begin to dishonor God with their lips, as Satan did. They begin to dishonor each other, right? The age-old marital problems begin right there. She made me do it. And that's usually a lie. <laughs> it's usually not true. Our temptation, again, is to, 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 to blame someone else for whatever our problems are. And we see that from our very first parents. And from Genesis chapter 4, or from chapter 3, and onward to the end of the book, this sort of deception and lying and questioning of God's truth 
questioning of God's word is, is a problem for all of humanity because you need to understand this. It's one of the reasons why I believe critical thinking actually leads you to the God of the Bible is because it makes most logical sense of why the world is functioning in the way that it is currently functioning in. That there is high deception, that there is high manipulation, that there is lying, as most people within America believe that there is a certain time and place that lying is okay. Case in point, does this dress look good on me? How is my hair cut? Does this make me look fat? No. To... um, you know, kind of counteract, to not get in trouble, what do we create? We, we believe that there is, man, some sort of way of which we can manipulate the system to deceive the person so that we, we don't have this argument or this fight. It, it happens in the way that you and I say things. And yet the Bible is very clear that humanity is broken in this way. Instead of reflecting... God, as his image bears, due to our sinful nature, you need to understand that it changes everything about us. We actually begin to reflect Satan's nature instead of a holy God. He is quoted as being the father of lies. He is the deceiver. He is the tempter. This is in our very sin nature, isn't it? We, we live in a culture and a time and a place. We are, as people, a people, generally speaking, that distort the truth, that we question God's word. And, and we're slandering and reviling and flattering and gossip uh, uh, has actually become very common and acceptable language among us. We've exchanged, as the Bible would say, a truth for a lie. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about thou shalt not murder, do not murder, um, I gave you a term from a professor that I had called violence porn and how that we are all kind of drifting toward and it's become commonplace for us to be really obsessed with death and destruction and war and killing from the movies that we watch, so on and so forth. You remember that? Well, this week I was reading an article um, from a guy from non-Christian from the New York Times who has also coined another term called outrage porn. What is outrage porn? Outrage porn is our culture's insatiable search for things to be offended by. Outrage porn resembles actual pornography in that it aims for cheap, temporary thrill at the expense of another human being, but without any personal accountability or commitment to that human being. We are in a truth deficit. The distortion of truth, the distortion of word, the distortion of of dethroning other people, of belittling other people is is very much a commonplace within our culture. See, we participate in a culture uh, where tearing down of another person is as common as breathing. 
In the words of pastor and author Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite books is called Respectable Sins. And when it comes to the sins of how we use our mouth, it has become very respectable from the language that we use, the slander that we use, the reviling that we use, the word choices that we use, to the gossip that we use, that this has become commonplace. And and to actually go against that culture, even within the church, and is, is, is very off-putting for many people. I don't know how many of you pay a, attention to uh, Christian Twitter. Uh, that's like where Christians supposedly get on Twitter and they talk about stuff. Um, I would encourage you not to pay any attention to it. The same thing goes um, as I'm snooping around and, and, and on my wife's Facebook account to see the many chain letters and like God said to send this to five different people of things that he did not say. You're actually then lying about God. But this is common practice. The junk, the truth that is out there within this very culture that you and I live with. Case in point, inside of the scripture over and over and over again, and especially in the New Testament, it uses the term false witness about someone as actually the term slander. To slander What is to slander? The utterance of false charges. Again, this is false witness. The utterance of false charges or misrepresentations would defame or damage another person's reputation. Slander occurs when we make false claims or misrepresent a person. Slander includes, you ever done this? Leaving out information. Why do we do that? Well, it makes ourselves often look better. When we leave out certain points and certain facts, we exaggerate. I'm a fisherman. I've caught lots of fish. We exaggerate, don't we? Slander allows us to gain power over people by stepping on the reputations of other people. It allows us to do that. We've created throughout social media the opportunity for people to just do this over and over and over and over again. Isn't this what campaigns are about in politics? Is it's not about policy anymore. I need to convince you that this person is the absolute worst person on the planet. And we see within these debates this going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Again, not typically over policy, but rather over the very person that is standing across the aisle from them. Let's get very personal about these attacks. This is the mode of the world. Because if I can, in any moment or an argument, immediately go to slandering of you, then I can essentially puff myself up to, to belittle you. Reviling, the scripture would call this as well. Another form of speaking toward another person's reputation. See if you're guilty. To criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. Reviling means to threaten, to spitefully abuse, to insult, to treat abusively, treat spitefully, accuse falsely, treat in a depicable manner. Manner means to subject one to verbal abuse and thus to reproach, vilify, speak in a highly insulting manner, insult strongly. Revile implies just abusive attack prompted by anger or hatred. To rail against means to scold someone using harsh, insolent, or abusive language. And I don't think that the Scripture is just meaning the 
traditional forms of cuss words. You ever looked at your kid and said, you're stupid? You ever thought it? I have a lot of Christian cuss words that I use when I'm driving down Scottsville Road. This is reviling of people. Calling people idiots. Shaking our fist at people. Swelling up using these words. It's all abusive language toward people. And and you may not think that it's that big of a deal. Because you struggle with truth. Because I struggle with truth. But we need to understand something very clearly this morning, that the Bible is very clear that all of these words mean something to God. The coarse language that you use, the coarse language that is used by many of us, is, is unbecoming of this understanding, especially when it's, when it's being pointed toward, like an arrow, towards someone else's, again, reputation. Have you ever gotten an argument? Not that any of you ever have, but I've read about arguments. Let me put it that way. And in reading about arguments, one of the things that is common within marriage is that you start arguing over the, um, I don't know, the temperature. And before you know it, that argument begins to escalate. And a few minutes into this argument, you're no longer arguing about the temperature inside of the house or that someone, not, not in my house, but they, they, they have a major problem with turning off and on the, the lights, meaning they're always on in every room, closet, wherever. Our lights are always on. I mean, somebody's house, their lights are always on. I see them, I'm like, man, if I was the dad over there, I'd just be so mad, right? But you begin to argue about something like that. And, and it starts out like, you know, the old-time yo mama jokes. And it's cool. It, it's cordial. You're, you're having this debate about these things. But all of a sudden, someone takes a, a punch to the throat, especially inside of relationships that you have with people that you really care about. Because if they've been vulnerable with you, then our temptation is, is, to, is to continue to one-up each other, don't we? Well, if you hurt me, wait till I hurt you, right? And then I hurt you, and then, and then I hurt you, and we're just trying to outdo each other in hurting each other. That's reviling each other. Please don't ask a man, ladies, how you've been messing up. Our short-term memory is typically really short. Show me an example. That's really hard for us to do, all right? I know that you got that filing cabinet that we've talked about before. Most of us guys don't, and our, but uh, likewise, it, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. The temptation is, is that once you've been you, reviled against, is that our temptation, our natural temptation apart from Christ, is to run straight for the jugular of someone who we just previously said that we loved by saying the one, two, three, four, five, ten things that we know will truly hurt them. This is reviling. The next thing that we see in this passage, it has to do with gossip. What is gossip? It's revealing personal or sensational facts about others. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8, it says, The words of the whisperer are like a delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. What a powerful piece of Scripture in reference to gossip. And that's why we go to Kroger, look at all the magazines, 
from Bat Boy to what the Kardashians are doing. We have a tendency, even within Christendom, to accept gossip. We call them prayer requests. Oftentimes, these things don't need to be shared. But it's become complacent. Again, it's become a respectable sin. Hey, I know that this is going on inside of this person's life, or I think it may, or this is what I've been told, whether it's in the workplace, your neighborhood, or even in your own home, that our temptation is, man, it's just just those whispering words. It's like we hang on every drop. Because our natural tendency is that once we've heard this, as long as we're not as bad as these people, then, man, we're A-OK. That it's free to share this sorts of information. But here's the deal. What you're saying may even be true, but we must ask the question, is it necessary to share it? Is it necessary to share it? Not only is it the speaking of gossiping sorts of things that ruin the reputation of others even behind their backs, but it simultaneously is evil to be silent as we listen to it. See, we are quick to put on blast a person, aren't we? We're quick to put on a blast or on our social media um, some sort of statement about a politician. A public figure. And it's like we love to get behind typewriters. Um, or even in the corridors of our own heart. Because even if it's not being spoken, there's, there's much more taking place here. But man, we just love to get onto these sorts of devices. And I, I, I'm completely convinced that it's not that they are all bad, but most of it is a deceptive time waster to rip your heart and soul. We know from science that people who participate in these things are more likely to be stressed and depressed. Why? Because of the words that are being spoken. The debating back and forth and the statuses of of individuals and the messages left, even amongst people who claim to be parts of the same church family, and yet love to broadcast things about wearing masks, not wearing masks, getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated. And here's the reality is, is none of us really know. Man, we love to do that. I can't tell you how many emails and statuses I've wrote that I've had to delete because I was under Laura's Facebook account. (laughs) She would not have appreciated. Oh, did you see what Laura, first lady, said? (laughs) She went after them people. It was me. But it's okay. It's acceptable. Not to the Lord. Not to the Lord. If you need to put anything on your Facebook status, Instagram, so on and so forth, that is highly debatable and has nothing to do with the Bible, don't put it. Just a general free rule for all of us. There's a reason why I don't have it. It's because it is not good for this man's soul. It's not good for my mind. 
It is not good for my affections. It does not stir me towards Jesus. It actually makes me angry, and it's typically angry towards people who I love. And I want to say things and speak things that are not... Because here's the deal. Trolls just don't live under bridges. They live on the internet. And it can be really easy to come up with, you know, flying Jay-Z at blah, 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 and not put your picture, not put your real name, and just absolutely land blast people and get into arguments that, again, are not honoring to the Lord. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus confronts the people when he's talking about this sort of deceptive nature of people and lying. He says in 8.44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But notice, Jesus isn't addressing Satan himself He's saying it to people who claim to know God. They're so deceived in their slandering, false witness, lack of truth, and their flattering of other people. That's what we love to do in the South. That's the sin of the South, is flattery. Bless your heart. It's this pumping up of somebody when internally... Uh, you're doing that for your own gain. We love to do these. We love to fall into these sorts of things. We love to fall into the trap of like, man, I'm good. This is not that big of a deal. What is, what is truth? What is reality? What are all of these sorts of things? And yet Jesus is addressing those same types of people, the Israelites, when he says, man, your father is the devil. Like you're acting like him. You're full of, of lies. You're full of these sorts of things. And, and here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. It's like, man, this passage is extremely tough. Look at it as it hits every one of us. We see this in the incarnation of Jesus. Like many of the other commands, Jesus takes these commands and expounds on them even further. In the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus declares that this is not just a, a matter of someone's speech, but rather it is a condition of our very hearts, meaning we can be thinking those things, harboring those things, having affection toward those things, and even if bad words or gossip or slander doesn't come out of our mouth, if our heart is evil and broken in that way and toward those people, then that is the, the severe issue and the real issue that's taking place. That's why Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus will look at a group of people who claim to know God and say, you brood of vipers, how could you speak good when you are evil? From out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Later in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 through 20, he says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And listen to this list, what's listed. Murder. Is that bad? Even Baptists can give an amen on that one, Right? Adultery. Not everybody should say amen, right? We should, but that's a, um, what do you mean by that? Sexual immorality. Theft, right? Sound very familiar to the Ten Commandments? False witness and slander. And he continues in verse 20. He says, these are what defile a person. So, 
you've never killed anybody, you've never participated in sexual immorality, you've never stolen anything. Man, you're good. But have you ever spoken ill will of somebody? Even if it's in the corridor of your own heart. Have you ever ruined someone's reputation? I don't know about you, and I think it has to do some with uh, personality. Maybe it has to do with some trauma. Uh, it can be really hard for me to remember um, good things, good encouragements. But, man, I can remember things, I mean, from early childhood that people have said to me. Words are extremely powerful, aren't they? They're in our hearts. Please. Friends, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, can, can, I think we should add this to our membership covenant. I will not stay, speak, and live your truth. Because that is one of the biggest deceptions that you will ever believe in this culture. This idea that is so prominent of that you need to speak and live your truth. Well, what's your truth? You guys hear this sort of language? This is the answer that I get whenever I ask my college students, what is truth? Well, what's true for me may not be true for you. You just need to speak and live your truth. This is one of the biggest lies and deceptions of sin, Satan, and death itself is to convince you and I of that very concept. Why? Because Jesus has already told us that our hearts are deceptive. That it's, it's, it's in our very hearts. Jeremiah will talk about this, right? And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We, we live in a society and cultures like, man, follow your truth. Speak your truth. Live your truth. And what does the truth of the gospel say according to those things? It says that most of those things are a lie. There's this uh, psychology term and neuroscience term that I'm going to drop on you, not because I know a lot of big words, but I know this one. It's called confabulation. This is outside the scripture, but it's something that is within human biology. And I, as a believer, a follower of Jesus, would suggest to you that it is because of our very fallen nature. Confabulation is this understanding you know, you and I have a tendency to believe that we know when we're lying to ourselves. But if you do the research and study, we don't. We have a tendency to, to add extra things into the story or to, again, take out certain things that you and I can... Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're talking to somebody, and they've completely fabricated a story that they are 100% believe that that is accurate and true. Anybody? Am I the only one? Hope you're not thinking about me. They're 100% believed. A running joke that I've had with some guys that I'm close with is like the color of this room right now. What color is it? Well, it's khaki, also known as tacky, but it's this, this tacky, the khaki 
kind of color, right? But, but you can get around certain people, and they, they, if you were to ask them to, to give witness or to understand, man, they will give completely opposite stories from one another. But they are completely convinced 100% of what they are testifying to is 100% accurate. And yet, both of them cannot be true. Why do they believe it's true, though? Because we're broken humanity. There's actually something in our brains that is telling us like we don't even know when we're lying to ourselves. So the concept of following your heart is such an evil concept. Why? Because if the scripture is true, it's telling us that our heart is very deceptive and can lead us into some really bad places. So, when we look at this passage of Scripture, and Jesus comes into this moment, and he begins to preach about these sorts of very things, he's very reflective of what God is saying inside the Old Testament. The, the premise of, of being careful how we speak about other people isn't something that is cut off before Jesus comes, but rather it is something that Jesus continues to dialogue and to speak into. But we see that in the incarnation of Jesus is that, that, that we have hope in this place today. I mean, again, inside, don't, don't raise your hand today. Have you ever reviled somebody? Have you ever slandered somebody? Have you ever shared gossip? You've probably done it in the last 24 hours. We sit or stand inside of this room today guilty. Guilty as charged. According to God, according to his work, according to his son Jesus, and according to the, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is the truth. It is the word. And, and Jesus declares, though, in this place that, yes, we are guilty. We are guilty in even ways that we don't even know that we're guilty yet. And yet, what do we see in the incarnation of Jesus? We see this, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see that God, who is, has high value on words, that God comes in the form of this God-man named Jesus, that the physical, the words of God has become flesh, and his name is Jesus. In John 1, 17, for the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 8, 31 through 33, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, to the Father, except through me. What is Jesus declaring over and over and over and over again? That if you want to know God, a God who is true, that if you want to know the God who places high value on words, then likewise you must know me because I am the embodiment of truth. I am the embodiment of God's word. I am his word and his truth in the flesh. And to be reconciled to this holy God, you must come through me. This Jesus, the Jesus who was perfect. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about him? That according to his culture, that he was deeply reviled. 
that he was slandered against, that he was gossiped about because he would eat and hang out with uh, sinners and prostitutes. What did they begin to tell Jesus? That he was a glutton. All these sorts of things. They begin to gossip about Jesus. If we had time this morning, I would love to take you to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm just simply going to run out of time today. To the Gospel of Matthew at the trial of Jesus. If you remember at the trial of Jesus, why is Jesus crucified by the Jewish people? For blasphemy. This is meaning that because of his witness and because of other witnesses around him who are giving false witness about him, that they literally put him to death for that. The Bible will tell us in Matthew chapter 26 that as, as Jesus is standing in trial, is that they, they began to figure out, it's like we need multiple witnesses here to come after Jesus. The Bible would tell us that he was mocked that he was laughed at, that he became the brunt of all of their jokes. And yet, Peter, speaking about this, later on in his writing, he will say, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continue entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the Jesus that you and I need to know. The call of the gospel isn't, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I just go out here and, well, let's try not to cuss people out. Let's just, let's try not to share any sensational information about anyone else. Do we need to pursue those things? Absolutely. But the call of the gospel is for you to come to terms with this greater activity, and that is, or this greater person, and it's not found in a refuge or in, a, in salvation within yourself, but you must come to grips today. Is Jesus who he says that he is? Is Jesus true? Does what Jesus declare about himself and about you and about humanity, is it true? And ladies and gentlemen, if this word is true, which I believe and I hope that you would believe as well, then that changes everything about us. We come running as, as the very thief who is on the cross. If you notice this from the New Testament story about when Jesus is hanging on the cross that he has two thieves next to him, and it says in one of those pass in, in one of the gospels, it declares that while those thieves were hanging on the cross, naked, beaten, probably hanging next to Jesus, what are they doing themselves? Mocking, reviling Jesus. Imagine that just for a moment. You're naked, being yelled at and screamed at, but if we can make the Jewish guy in the middle seem even less than us, then that presents us. I mean, can you understand the, the, the distorted heart of a person as they stand there or, or, or being crucified next to Jesus and for their own entertainment, their last breaths are used in the making fun of the guy in the middle? And yet, what happens to one of those thieves? What happens to one of those slanderers, revilers? The Bible says that apart from Jesus, that slanders and revilers and liars go to hell. They get what they deserve. 
We stand, ladies and gentlemen, apart from Christ, you and I stand condemned. And yet, what does the Bible tell us in Romans chapter 8? That there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You must come to grips with this Jesus. We do have a life to pursue. We need to be very careful with the words that are coming out of our mouth. But first things, the words that need to come out of our mouths is a true heartfelt confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is true. You've been given a message of grace here this morning to hear this truth. We know that we're guilty. Every one of us in this is guilty. And apart from Christ, you will receive the punishment that you deserve. But inside of Christ, if you will confess, I am a reviler, I am a slanderer, if you will come to Jesus, place your faith not in yourself and your ability to be a good boy or a good girl, but you will place your faith in a good God, his name is Jesus, then he can radically transform your life, my life, in such a way that, you know what, then we start because of the Holy Spirit that is dwelling inside of us, then we can actually, because our nature has been changed, actually not be slanderers, actually not be gossipers, but rather use our speech for good. And what is that? It's to bear witness of the goodness and greatness of that Jesus then going from using our, our words for slander, we now go and use our words for the speaking of the gospel. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. We're to be slow to speak about many things. And yet we're to be quick to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. He is your only hope. So, friends, Mission Church, guests, look at God, and you will quickly see that you are not Him. Be confronted with this truth, and what do you recognize? We are desperately guilty. And then look to Jesus as the only one who can save you and transform your life. Because once Jesus has arrested your heart, it is arrested forever. Transformed forever. It is not something that you can lose because he will not lose any. So friends, will you come to this Jesus? Will you come to this truth? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, for